So the psychology test on the screen, if you can't see it well, look it up later online. It's the coffee bean test. Idea here is, again, you have just a few seconds to try to find the human face inside this picture of the coffee beans. And what psychology says is if you can find the face in about three to 10 seconds, you're very right-brained in your thinking, the right brain, the creative side. If it takes you longer than that, leading up to a minute, then it means you're more left brain in your thinking, more logic. And the interesting thing about the picture, though, is once you do see the face, you'll always see it the next time you see this experiment. The idea is, again, we see things with different perspectives, but once we have more information, then we can see things more clearly. And again, once you see the face, you'll never have to be shown it again. Let me give you an example of that from Monica and I. You know, a few years ago, we were visiting her brother and we were getting ready to leave, headed out to the car. She couldn't find her cell phone and she said, I can't find my phone. She checked her purse. She, you know, she patted down her coat, said maybe it was left in the car. We searched the car, couldn't find it there, went back in the house, searched there. The, the brother said, let me check the car. He came out and checked the car whole time we're checking, there's some kids, four of them, about 10, 11 years old, riding bikes in the streets. And my wife said, you know, maybe those kids stole my phone out of the car. And so we thought maybe that's true, but let's continue to, to recheck everything. After rechecking everything again, we thought maybe those kids did steal the phone, getting ready to say something to them. And suddenly Monica got quiet and I looked over and I said, what is it? And she said, I found my phone. I said, where? And she pulled it out. She said, it was in my pocket. And, and again, it's just an example. You know, we were going to confront those kids. And once we had the rest of the story, more perspective, we understood and were able to laugh about the situation. 2001, the iPod was released, and Steve Jobs made a great observation. He said releasing the iPod didn't just change how we listened to music. It changed the entire music industry. You know, CDs before that, you could listen to 12, 15 songs. The iPod, now you could listen to hundreds, thousands of songs on one device, and it changed how artists released music. It changed how the producers released music. Interesting thing, again, you change one thing, we're going to look at maybe changing perspective. It impacts so many other parts of our life. Love this quote here, Kenneth Sauer. We are all just human beings, and yet we are so often fearful of one another. We are afraid of what other human beings, who are no better than we are, think of us. We are afraid of what other human beings, who are no better than we are, can do to us. We live in fear rather than in confidence and love, and rather than embrace who we are, we try and be something else, something fierce, cold, tough, uncaring, non-compassionate, or whatever that isn't who we were created to be. Changing one thing, changing perspectives, a new decision impacts every part of our life. And we're going to look at something here in the book of Isaiah that is profound and it speaks to the people in Isaiah's day. It speaks to us as well because they're believers of the faith of Abraham in Christ and we're that same faith in Christ. So what's said to them is said to us. What's taking place here in Isaiah 700 BC, there is a new king in Judah. His name is Hezekiah. Their enemy nation to the north is the empire of Assyria. 
up to this point, Hezekiah has been paying Assyria basically a, a treaty, and he has been paying them for protection. And now the king there dies, and a new king in Assyria is born. His name's Sennacherib. Hezekiah says, a new king, I don't think I should pay tribute any longer. And then Assyria decides they will now attack Judah. And the interesting thing is, now Jerusalem, Judah, Hezekiah, without consulting God, says, let's form an alliance with our old enemy, Egypt. We've talked so many times, anytime you see in scripture, Egypt represents going down to Egypt is going back into sin, going into selfishness, going into the world. Hezekiah and the people moving from faith, they're going to go to Egypt, the old enemy. They're going back into sin, worldliness, selfishness to self-seek, find their own way to face this enemy, Assyria. Notice what happens here. Isaiah now shows up, the prophet, with the words of God. Just a few verses here. Isaiah 30, verse 10 and 11, God says through Isaiah, This is a rebellious people who virtually say to the seers by their conduct, See not, and to the prophets, prophesy not. Do not prophesy what is right, rather speak to us smooth things, deceitful illusions. Think about what he just said. The people now had been following false gods, and they say to the prophets, don't tell us what is true. Lie to us. Just tell us things to make us feel better, even if it's a lie. The next thing he says is, the people said to the prophets, tell us to turn from the true way and cease holding up before us the Holy One of Israel. Pretty much describes the world today. That people redefine truth and anything goes, but what people do not want is to hear about holiness. And that's what they said then. Cease telling us about the Holy One of Israel. Do what thou will, believe what you want, but not when it comes to talking about holiness. They didn't want to hear about turning from self and sin. What does that look like? A real example here. We've talked before. Fascinating story. We all remember the 33 men in the Chilean mine, and some of them came out with a tremendous faith, but some of them, that changed for them over time. If you remember, they were given a 2% chance of survival. And so with that small sense of survival, they began to look at the big questions about life. What's my legacy? What matters the most? They began to confess to each other their, their faults, their sins, apologizing what they wish they would have done differently. They asked a man named Jose Henriquez to pray for them, and they recorded what he said, and he prayed, we aren't the best men, Lord, but have pity on us. And then he got very honest, and he continued, and he said, Sergovia knows he drinks too much. Victor is too quick to anger. Pedro thinks about the poor father he has been to his daughter. Days on end, they were this honest, this devoted, caring, compassionate. Hector Tobar writes about the incidents that happened next and shares, unfortunately, the happiest part of the story is also the saddest. Eventually, rescuers drill through the rock, and the miners know they will be rescued. They learn they're becoming famous and may become rich. And note what happens next. Then the confessing stops, the praying stops, 
The lure of money and fame undoes the transformative community that had developed in their shared suffering. And here's the key. They were at their best when life was at its worst. Coming out of mind, many got into lawsuits and walked away from their commitments. Sometimes when life has the most challenges, we become the most honest. And sometimes we make some promises we don't keep. What happened in Isaiah's time, same thing took place. The people had been following God, but then they had all these blessings. They became, in their own minds, self-sufficient. They became arrogant, so they started to follow false religions and false gods. And when God shows up and speaks through Isaiah, he says, at this point, the people are even saying to the prophets, lie to us. We don't want to know the truth, and please don't talk about holiness. It's going to lead to a very interesting response from God. We'll see that here in a moment. You know, John Ortberg, he shared something just fascinating. He said, researchers say that babies learn how to fake cry by the time they are six months old. And Ortberg writes, think about that. Before learning how to use words, we learn how to lie, to pretend, to misrepresent. Yet, in order to achieve relationship and intimacy, we must be willing to be honest and vulnerable. That is true for us in relationship to others and in relationship to God. There has to be that honesty, even if it's honesty about things that are very uncomfortable, honest about sin, honest about shortfalling, honest about our real needs, our deepest fears. Back to what's taking place in Israel with Isaiah They wanted people to lie. Again, our culture in a place now where people are redefining what words mean, challenging things and saying what is true is no longer true and very much in line with this time in Isaiah saying we don't want to talk about holiness. Notice what God says, though, to the children of Israel. They have this plan. Assyria is on their way. They say, let's go make a treaty with Egypt. You remember they had left Egypt under Moses. Egypt represents the world. It represents slavery, sin, selfishness. And their grand plan is now let's go back to those, our former captors. That's how desperate they had become. They had turned from God. So much so they're going to go back to Egypt. And here's what God has to say about that plan going back to Egypt. He says in verse 7, The Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. And notice he says, Therefore I have called Egypt Rahab Hem Shabeth. It's an insult that God is now saying, You you want to know what Egypt is, that self-seeking, that sin, that worldliness? It's Rahab Hem Shabeth. Rahab is a a legend at that time about a sea creature that was a myth and the sea creature was a representation of evil. And so God is mocking this idea of Egypt by saying you're trusting in something make-believe, this idea that you have enough strength in your arrogance and self. Here's some other words for that Rahab Hem Shabbath translated into English versions. The English Standard Version translates it as Rahab who sits still. NIV has Rahab the do-nothing. New Living Translation, Rahab the harmless dragon. Christian Standard has Rahab who just sits. And the contemporary English has helpless monster. 
all appropriate translations of Rahab Hem Shabeth. Again, God is mocking, saying you're going to Egypt, the one who does nothing, who just sits, the one who is the helpless monster. That was where their trust was. We might think we know what God is going to say when they go to Egypt, but it may not be what we might think. On the screen is Rembrandt's picture of the prodigal son. Painted 1669, just shortly before he would die. Some say his most beloved picture. I had a class. We talked much about this picture here. You'll notice in Rembrandt's painting, there are five figures. Three of them are in the sunlight. Two are in the dark. The two in the dark represent people that are in the background, simply observing from the outside. They might talk about faith, but it's not something that's a part of their life. They might look in on God's promises and grace. Maybe they, you know, talk about faith once in a while, but from the outside, they're just looking in. Off to the right, you see the brother, and you know from the parable that Jesus shared that he was upset about the return of his sibling. He was ashamed of him. And in the picture here, he stands off separate from the father with his hands folded, looking very stoic, trying to look dignified. The idea here is that he is more concerned about his reputation. He's not going to embrace his brother. He's off to the side, standing tall, concerned about how he looks. But you can see his face is anything but happy. There's a prodigal son on the ground. You see his head is shaved, a symbol of shame. But you also see he's missing a shoe from his foot. Rembrandt painting that he must have been running very fast to get home. And then the main person in the picture, the father, hands on the prodigal as he hugs him. But his hands there, you'll notice Rembrandt painted the right hand as feminine to represent a mother's love. The left hand is masculine to represent a father's strength. His hands are in a position of a blessing. And what the painting is to elicit is for us to stop and say, you know, who am I in this picture? Are we like the ones in the darkness that are separated on their own choice, just wanting to observe but never get involved in real faith? Are we more like the brother on the side, more concerned about what others might be thinking? We've all been the prodigal many times. The challenge, though, is to live more like the Father. As Jesus said, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father, and our life should look like Christ. So we should be seeking more and more to look like the Father in this picture, embracing the lost, leading people from the darkness into the light, sharing grace and compassion and love and strength. Which brings us back to Isaiah, the children of Israel now concerned about Assyria. So they turn to Egypt, their old captors, the do-nothing place. What is God's response to that? Isaiah thirty eighteen. Isaiah says, The Almighty longs to be gracious to you. 
As the Amplified Version says, the Lord earnestly waits to be gracious to you. What does God do when we turn and become the prodigal? Isaiah says he waits. He waits for us to turn and come back home. As Richard Toe says, God is extremely hopeful about you and me. Isaiah continues and he says this, blessed or happy are all who wait for him. You know, we all have moments where the metaphor, you know, Assyria, something huge is going to come crashing into our life. And we might be tempted to go to Egypt to depend on self, depend on worldly things, turn to sin. And in that moment, what does God do? We're told that he waits. And Isaiah says more than that, blessed or happy are those who wait for God. Rather than running to Egypt to stop and say, Lord, I need you. I love the amplified version. Isaiah 30, 18 says, blessed, happy, fortunate, to be envied are all those who earnestly wait for him, who expect, look, and long for him, for his victory, his favor, his love, his peace, his joy, his matchless, unbroken companionship. As we are moving into this year, you know, maybe we've been the prodigal and the promises God waits, waits for us to come home. Maybe we've been the, the son who was the stoic one who stood off in, in just anger, resentment, or told God waits. Maybe we've gone down to Egypt, same thing, God waits. And let me share as we close this just amazing story here from Dan, a lender, a minister who speaks at different conferences. And at one particular conference, he was there a day early. He brought his 10-year-old son. Eight o'clock that night, he says, let's go fly fishing. He didn't have the experience. They were in the middle of the river trying to figure out how to fly fish. It was getting dark and he made the comment, as there are birds flying around, there sure are a lot of birds for this time of night. And his son says, those are not birds, those are bats. And Dan Allender shares he has a real phobia of bats. And he began to panic. And he's in the middle of the river, and the bats are flying close. And he starts to, to try to get out of the river, and he's trying to swing his fishing rod to move the bats away. And while he's doing that, he hits one. It falls into the water. And now he's panicked because it's, it's in the water. And so he's, he's hitting the water. He's swinging at the air. And his lure's in the water still. And all this commotion attracts a fish that grabs hold of the lure. And then he shares, now he's got a fish on the line. He's swinging at bass in the air, swinging at them in the water, trying to get the lure out of the fish's mouth. All this going on as he moves towards shore. And as he gets to shore, there's a man sitting in a chair. And I'll read his words, what happens next. As I walked by this man, he reached up, grabbed my arm, pulled me close to his face and said, Son, I've been fishing 50 years. I want you to know I have never seen anything like this. I just wanted to thank you. 
Dan says, I'm a good communicator, but I had no words for that man. And for the next several days at the conference, I avoided him. For the rest of the conference, I did my best to stay away from that man who had saw me in the water. But he sat right in front when I taught, so I moved my eyes up and around him. At meals, I ate on the other side of the dining hall. For a few days, I managed to keep him at bay. Each day of the conference, I took my son fishing for a couple of hours right after lunch, and for three days straight, we caught nothing. On the third day, as we were coming in, getting the boat secured, all that equipment back to our cabin, that man I'd been avoiding pursued me. I could see him coming out of the corner of my eye, and I knew I couldn't get away. And when he got to me, he said, I see you've been taking your son out to catch fish. I said, yes, sir, I have. I noticed you've been taking him out between 1 and 3.30 each day. Yes, sir. I noticed you haven't caught anything. Yes, sir. Do you know that fish don't usually bite between 1 and 3.30? No, sir, I didn't know that. You don't know much about fishing, do you? No, sir, I don't. Do you want to catch a fish? Do you want your boy to catch a fish? Absolutely, yes. Then what I want you to do is be here at 5.30 tomorrow morning. The man gave me two good lures, told me some specific places to fish, which was information I did not have and would not have had if he had not spoken into my life. If he had not, in his own way, been an angel of confrontation, of information, of exposure, had he not, in some sense, entered what a marred reality I reveal about Jesus Christ, I would never have known what I was doing wrong. The next morning, Andrew and I went out at 5.30. We were so excited. I had a sense that today would finally be the day we finished from 5.30. We fished from 5.30 to 7.30, but neither of us caught a thing. I told my wife we'd be back at 8. So at 7.45, I looked at my son and said, we've got to go. We have to go in. Oh, Dad, please let me fish a little bit more. My first thought though I didn't voice it, was what for? Really, what for? This was not one of the most profound issues in the world, but I was angry at God. I was angry at the fact that he could divide the Red Sea, but he wouldn't provide my son with one lousy fish. Just because my son had a father who's incompetent and doesn't know how to fish or where to go or what to do, I was furious with God. There was a part of me at that moment that hated hope. I hated the prospect of looking at my son, knowing how much he wanted to catch a fish and knowing it was not going to happen. With that thought, I looked at him and said, no, we need to go. He looked at me and very quietly said, please, dad, just one more time. Inside, I was raging. Nevertheless, I looked at my son and answered with words tempered by a message the spirit of God had in that instant spoken to me, do you want to kill hope in him? Do you want to kill hope in your son as you've allowed it in this moment to be killed in you? I softened. Who knows how it occurred, but I softened. I looked at my son. I said, no, Andrew, you can't fish one more time, but you can fish five more. He said, really? Yes, I said, not four, not six, five. The first cast went out, then the second, then the third. 
With each cast, I prayed, Lord, please let him have a fish. By the fourth cast, I was back to thinking, why hope? You fooled me into dreaming for my son again. I hoped again and my hopes were dashed. I turned away from my son and began to pull on the oars as Andrew threw his line out for the fifth time. All of a sudden, he said, Dad, stop. I turned around. His pole was bent. Andrew, move your rod a little bit. He moved the pole a little. I could see there was no movement. You've snagged a log or a boot. You don't have a fish. I turned back to the oars, and then he yelled, Dad, look. This time I saw now the line was moving. His rod was bent. It was moving, and for the next five or six minutes, he fought to bring in his fish. Soon we could see he didn't have a beautiful mountain trout. What he had was a northern pike. As he fought to reel in the fish, I could tell he was getting tired. I said, Andrew, let me hold the rod just for a moment. And when he finally got the fish up next to the boat, he said, Dad, grab it. We got his fish off the hook and rowed back to shore. It was a phenomenal moment. It was probably one of the most important moments ever in my life as a father. And then perhaps one of the most important moments in my son's life. And he said, said, Dad, we have a God, don't we? And I looked and I said, yeah, we do. A moment passed and he said, God, I know your name. I'd never heard him talk like that before about the name of God. He knew what the Bible's names were. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean, Andrew? And he said, I know God's name. What is his name for you? I asked. What he said was God's name is the God of the fifth cast. God's only desire is to bless. Bless.